Thanks for whoever left a note. Okay, well, good morning again. And turn with me to, to uh, John chapter 1, as we're going to look at the first 14 verses of John, John chapter 1. We continue in this uh, Advent series, The Meaning of Christmas, and last week we looked at uh, the uh, term expectation that came from the book of Matthew, and this week we'll be looking at this theme of the incarnation that comes from John chapter 1, and the next week we'll look at the term or the theme of celebration and the meaning of Christmas. But today we turn to John 1 and look at the theme or the understanding of the real meaning of Christmas, uh, the foundation really of Christmas is the incarnation. So we're going to look at John 1, 1 through 14. Let me pray for us and then we'll read God's word together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, it is the living word of God. It is the word um, that even existed before creation. And so I pray this morning... Um, would you come and uh, implant your word into our minds and our hearts this morning and that, Lord, we might love you more, that we might see the, the majesty of Jesus, the King and our Savior uh, this morning, uh, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, Lord, I pray, would you anoint the preaching of your word this morning, help me in my weakness and in my frailty as a person and as a human, uh, that, Lord, your word would come through clearly despite of, of me, the messenger. Uh, Lord, we love you and thank you. And uh, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Hear now God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, we're thinking about the real meaning of Christmas, and we're looking at incarnation today. And I really think this is the heart of the Christmas message. And so I want to think about a few things together with you this morning. And I come to this passage excited. I love John chapter 1. But at the same time, I come to you with trembling because we are standing on holy ground, folks, when we talk about the incarnation of Christ because it really is the foundation. It's really the bedrock of Christianity. And so uh, this is one of the greatest statements, I believe, in, in all of John's gospel. And really, I think it's one of the greatest statements in all of literature because it gives us this statement, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, John says, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so there's these statements that John makes here, and I want to look at three particular statements that John makes here uh, as he has had this experience with the Lord Jesus. And so here are the three statements if you're taking notes. The first one is this is that John 
is describing Jesus here, and he calls him the Word of God. So that's the first statement we'll look at is the Word of God. Second statement, John says that this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then the third statement that John felt for the first time as the Word became flesh, John felt for the first time that he had indeed really seen the glory of Jesus. And so this first statement to man, the Word the word was with God or the word was God. This first statement brings into mind this relationship between the Lord and the God in eternity. And John identifies this word. And at Christmas time, right, we're accustomed to these wonderful phrases, right? We even sing about this statement, the word was God or the word was with God in, in certain Christmas hymns and carols. And so John says, in the beginning was the word, right? And the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. Now, what does all that mean, right? What is John, the apostle John, trying to say to us? Well, first of all, he describes, and you got to know who he's talking about. It's very clear he's talking about the Lord Jesus, right? And so he describes the Lord Jesus as the Word of God. Now, if you, you know, have spent any time reading the Bible, look at the language that John uses. The first one, two, three. Is that right? Am I getting that right? Yeah. First three words of John 1 say what? Read it to me. What does it say? In the beginning. What does that make you think about? Does that ring a bell to anything that you maybe have read before in the Bible? Yeah, thank you. Yes. Genesis 1, right? So John is, you see what he's doing here? It's John is all of a sudden saying, let's think about the very first chapter of the Bible, shall we? In fact, he uses the very same language in his gospel that Moses did. Moses was the writer of Genesis. He uses the very same language, right, that Moses uses in his gospel, his good news, if you will, about the creation of the world. Genesis 1, how does it begin? In the beginning, right? We all probably know that in our heads or our hearts. We've memorized it. In the beginning, God created, right? Here we have, in the beginning was the Word. And so if you're reading John's first chapter here in his gospel, and you got any kind of Bible knowledge, here's what John's doing. He's saying, reader, here's what I want to do with you. I want to transport you back all the way through history. And I don't want to stop there. I want to transport you back all the way to the beginning in creation, but I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to transport you back even further back before creation. And he makes this astounding statement that the Lord Jesus who is identified as the Word, was in the beginning. And he makes it clear that Jesus was that Word who spoke the cosmos, who spoke the universe, who spoke the world into being, into existence. And then he says this Word was with God. Now, in the Greek language, you know, I don't speak Spanish. Here, you know, funny story, I thought... I was going to be a missionary to Peru when I was in college. Don't ask me why Peru. So I decided to major in Spanish. Well, that only lasted a semester because, you know, in high school, you know, your Spanish teacher speaks English and Spanish to you. When you get to college, your foreign language teacher only speaks Spanish. She didn't speak any English, so I had no idea what was going on in class. So I didn't last but just a semester in Spanish, and the Lord quickly changed my dreams of becoming a missionary to Peru uh, to becoming a pastor. I'm glad I'm not a missionary to Peru. Um, so I don't speak Spanish. My lovely wife, Presley Ann, speaks fluent Spanish. And so when her family gets together, they speak Spanish, you know. And 
And sometimes I can kind of understand what they're talking about, but every once in a while there's the word they there's words in Spanish that just don't translate well to English, right? Well, in the Greek it's the same way. There are words in the Greek that just don't translate that well into English. And here in John 1, the word was with God, same kind of thing. It just doesn't, there's just really no English equivalent to what the Greek says when it says the word was with God. The translate, it kind of gets lost in translation, but the best way to put it in English, English would be like this. The word was towards God, towards, like face to face. The word was with God or towards God, okay? One of the New Testament scholars that I was reading he translates it like this. Maybe it's a, even a better translation. He says the word was face to face with God. Kind of like that when two people are facing one another. The word was face to face with God. So think of it like this. You know, every culture that you would encounter has particular expectations or every culture that you would encounter has a particular set of etiquette, right? And so... And I would imagine most cultures have the same kind of etiquette when it comes to the expectations or etiquette that governs relationships between a man and a woman. Okay, track with me. In most societies, man, particularly in, say, Middle Eastern cultures, a man is not to lock eyes with a woman, right? You just, you don't do that. Here in America, right, in our culture, you don't go to the mall and walk around and lock eyes with women because you get arrested, right? They think you're a creeper, right? You just... You don't lock eyes with other women, right? You just, you don't do that culturally, etiquette-wise. You just don't do that, right? So say, okay, now here's the deal. If you do lock eyes with another woman, really in any culture, it's because you have an intention, right? You're trying to communicate something, right? When you see a, I don't know, you're a young man and you see a pretty girl across your class in seventh grade, you know, you're thinking, you're locking eyes and going, hee-hee, you know, I mean, you're cute, right? You're making an intention. You're communicating something that, I like you. Do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. You know, I mean, it's that kind of thing, right? So, say you're a young man and you have a girlfriend and y'all are out to dinner in a restaurant and all of a sudden some other young man in the restaurant locks eyes with your girlfriend. You know, what do you want to do? You want to go over there and punch the guy in the mouth, right? Same thing, you know, say you're a married man and you discovered another married man locking eyes with your wife. No way, Jose, right? You want to go and bust his chops, right? So, there's this kind of unspoken etiquette that springs up with this unique special relationship between a man and a woman and so you can look at each other right but if you're outside of that family circle you're out outside of those bonds of commitment between this husband and wife you don't lock eyes with that special person right you like you do but no other people should lock eyes with that special person in your life and that's kind of what john's communicating here to us so the other way i could really think about it but it's as if jesus who was the word of god had locked eyes with his Father, with his heavenly Father. And as he locks eyes with his heavenly Father, even before creation, in all of eternity, even before time and space began, Jesus had locked eyes with his Father, and he was soaking in that special, intimate relationship with his Father. He was soaking in the majesty of his Father's love and soaking in the majesty of his Father's grace towards them towards him. And so that's kind of what John is doing. He's trying to stretch our imagination here with this picture of Jesus as the word of God. And what's so amazing really is that later on in chapter 1, John says that 
the son, Jesus, has this most intimate, locked eyes relationship with his father. And the son, John tells us that Jesus has come to make the father known to us, right? And then if you read John's gospel, how does John describe himself with his relationship with Jesus? Do you know? How does John describe himself as the disciple that what? Jesus loved, right? The beloved disciple. That's right. And so John had this very intimate relationship with Jesus. And uh, really, in, even in Middle Eastern cultures today, probably not so much today as it was certainly in biblical times, but in Middle Eastern culture, men would rest their heads on each other's chest or bosom, right? And that seems a little weird to us, right? You know, bros don't do that these days. We hug, maybe do the side hug a little bit or the chest bump, but we don't rest our heads on each other's bosoms. That would be a little weird, right? But in the Middle Eastern culture, that's what they did, and especially as a term of affection, as best friends or brothers. And so John would rest his head on the bosom or on the chest of Jesus, right? And he would gaze. Oh, and this would be just so wonderful. And I know we get to do this in heaven, but to gaze in the eyes of Jesus. As John would gaze into the eyes, resting his head on the chest of Jesus, gazing into the eyes of Jesus. And I would believe that John would see the reflection of the the Father's eyes as he looked into the eyes of Jesus. And so John makes these astounding statements that are huge and wonderful, that really are almost too big for us to comprehend, that he was the Word of God. He was with God, face to face, in intimacy with the Father. But then, he doesn't leave it there. He takes us even deeper still and says, not only was the Word of God Word with God, but what does he say? The Word was himself God, okay? And then he goes on to tell us that the Word had life in and of himself, that all things were created through him and by him, that nothing that was made, nothing was made that was made apart from him. And then John goes on and essentially writes his whole gospel to explain how Jesus had come alongside of him, that he was Jesus' beloved disciple, and that Jesus had led John to this conclusion of who Jesus said he was. And so if you read the Gospel of John, go home and read it today. Read it. It shouldn't take you very long at all. It may be an hour. Go home and read the Gospel of John word for word, and you will see that it's unmistakable that the Gospel of John proclaims, it's brimming over with the words of Jesus telling us of his work among us, but also Jesus proclaiming and exclaiming that he is one with the Father. Jesus is saying again and again, I am one with the Father. He says again and again in the book of John, the Gospel of John, that I am equal with the Father. He says, I am only going to do the things that the Father tells me to do, right? He says, I'll only speak with the authority of the Father. And so you read the Gospel of John, and one perspective would be, okay, you can read the Gospel of John and think, okay, This is just John's opinion of Jesus. It's just John's opinion of who Jesus says he is. You know, Jesus, yeah, he, John, John, it's John's opinion that Jesus is this close to God, that he was the word of God, that he indeed was God. That's just John's opinion. John was a nutcase. I don't believe him. Well, you can, you can say that, right? But if you read the gospel of John, you take the gospel itself face value It's unmistakable that John's saying, listen, this isn't my opinion about Jesus. Jesus taught me this about himself. This is Jesus' opinion about himself, that he is God. He was with God and was God. 
I've mentioned C.S. Lewis a lot. I love reading Lewis. And if you have read Lewis, you've probably heard Lewis's argument about this. But Lewis has this particular essay that he wrote called What We Are to Make of Jesus Christ. And his thoughts on this essay end up being in a lot of his writings. But basically, he postulates this. He kind of sets up an imaginative scenario. He says, say you were to get up on stage here, some of the world's great spiritual leaders like Confucius and Muhammad and Buddha and some other Socrates, kind of the world heavyweights of spirituality and religion. And say you were to interview these guys and you were to go up and let's take, for instance, you were to go up to Buddha and say to Buddha, hey, Buddha, uh, are you the son of Brahma? Okay. Buddha would say, well, listen, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. No, I am not son of Brahma. Then you could go up to Socrates and ask Socrates, hey, Socrates, are you Zeus? And well, Socrates would just laugh at you and say, no, I'm not Zeus. Then you could go to Muhammad and, and ask Muhammad, hey, Muhammad, are you Allah? What would Muhammad do? Well, first he would tear his clothes and then cut your head off, right? That's likely what he would do. So the point Lewis is making And he makes this point in a lot of his writings. He says this, that we can never think of Jesus as just some great moral teacher. Now, why is that? Why can't we just look at Jesus like we would these other spiritual religious guys? And, you know, we think of them as great moral teachers. Why can't we lump Jesus in with these folks, right? Why can't we just view Jesus as this great moral teacher? Well, if it wasn't, if it were not for what he claims to be, and what John had discovered him to be, then Jesus, it makes Jesus far from being a great moral teacher. Here's what I mean. You see, Lewis, C.S. Lewis would say Jesus wasn't a great moral teacher. And if he wasn't a great moral teacher, then that really makes him either who he says he was, God, or he was a lunatic and a liar. He was a nutcase. And so think about it like this. Jesus, his own people, his own culture, right? viewed him, as, in a sense, as a liar, as a lunatic, right? They called him a blasphemer, right? And so if Jesus was truly who he claimed to be, right, in his culture, he was, according to his culture, he was rightfully executed because they saw Jesus as a blasphemer, as a liar. But John makes this claim, and he confronts us in a stunning and powerful way. John basically says, listen, you can't wiggle out of this. You've got to be able to deal with this. I'm going to confront you. You can't wiggle out of this confrontation of who Jesus claims to be, of who he says he himself is. Right off the bat in John 1, John says, listen, you can't arrogantly just say, oh, Jesus, you're this great moral teacher. Let me snuggle up to you for a little while. I'm going to learn some things, and then then I'm going to put you away. John's saying, no, my friends, you can't do that. Jesus was either who he claimed to be. He was the word. He was with God, and he was God. Or else he was a bold-faced liar. And the reason you are sitting here today is because he has duped you for all these years. And he has duped untold millions of people over the last 2,000 years. See, John's confronting you, saying, listen, he's not just a great moral teacher. He is the word of God. He was with God, and he is God. And so he makes this bold, bold, bold claim here in John 1. And what's so staggering here is that John makes these points about Jesus. And he makes these wonderful points about Jesus, yet at the same time, he was so intimately acquainted with Jesus, right? And his word, if you think of Jesus in relation to eternity, 
John's saying Jesus was in the beginning with God. He was God, right? And he's able to say these things because he doesn't just see Jesus related to eternity, but he also sees Jesus related to time as well. We always we saw that, right? That Jesus, in relationship to eternity, John is saying Jesus is deity. He was with God. He was God. But then he takes it and brings it into our space and time and says, not only was he God, with God, and was God, but he, we can know him intimately through his nativity, John says. And so John uses these very simple English words, the word became flesh, right, and dwelt among us. And it's interesting. Now, why, did, why does John not say, you know, he could have chosen the words God became man, right? Just simplified it. God became man. But he says the word was God was God and became flesh. Now, why does John use this almost archaic term flesh? We don't use the word flesh very often, do we? Well, John wants to emphasize, get this. He uses the word flesh because John wants to emphasize just how far Jesus traveled without losing his divinity, his divine identity. Notice he doesn't say the word was changed into flesh or the word was changed into man, but he says what? The word became flesh. In other words, Jesus remained everything that he had always been before time and space and eternity, but now he was also all of human flesh. And if you you read this, the Bible, and you hear the term flesh, it's often used in the context of human weakness, right? Our flesh is weak. Our flesh is frail. Our flesh is little. It's small, right? And so John says that Jesus became flesh. And a couple of chapters later, if you read his Gospels, he says that Jesus became tired, right? That Jesus became thirsty, a couple of chapters later on, he tells us that Je- how Jesus was completely grieved and troubled in spirit, that he was deeply moved by the loss of his friend Lazarus. You remember that? That Jesus wept, right, over his grief. That Jesus wept over the grief of his friends and loved ones, Lazarus' friends and loved ones who were weeping over the destruction of death. And Jesus wept over that. And then later on, he went to suffer on the cross. And John makes it very clear that Jesus is heart was deeply troubled and his disciples witnessed Jesus and his heart being deeply troubled, right? And then the other gospel writers tell us more about Jesus and how he became flesh, right? When he was facing his death. Because, you know, he had a reason to become flesh. The reason he became flesh is so that he had to take our sins in order that he would go to the cross and carry the burden of our sins on the cross of Calvary. Jesus was so real. John's trying to help you see that he was so fleshly. He was so real. He was so burdened even about his impending death that he sweat blood mixed with sweat. And he came, says John, to dwell among us as the Son of God. And I love this. The language that he uses here to dwell among us. You know, if you were a Jewish reader of John's gospel, it would have immediately brought you back to the Old Testament. You would have seen this phrase, to dwell among us. And like any good Jewish reader, you would have gone, oh, you know what that sounds like? That sounds a lot like the language in the Old Testament. Uh, it, it would refer to the temple, God's tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the temple. So he came and dwelt in our flesh as a tent, literally as a tabernacle, and we beheld his glory. It reminds me in the Old Testament of Moses. Do you remember when Moses went to meet with God in a tent of meeting, right? And he's in there meeting with God, 
And then he turns around, he walks out of the tent. And what, is, what does it say about Moses? He was radiating God's glory, right? So much so that the people couldn't even look at him, right? He was radiating the glory of God. And the people couldn't bear the glory that was shining from Moses' face. It's like when I marry a couple. I get to see, and I, I know I reference this often, but it really is one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is marry a couple. Because I get to see that. Y'all don't get to see this. I mean, I, I get the best job in the world because y'all are out there and you can kind of see the couple. But man, I'm like close up. I can see the pores on their noses. You know, I'm, and it's so cool because this couple, they're just radiating glory, right? They're in love. They're getting married. They're coming together and making this covenant commitment for life, right? You know, I found my destiny in marrying this other person. And so they just radiate this joy and this happiness and this glory, right? And I think that was something like Moses, true of Moses, when he walks out of this tent. And now John's saying, listen, it's, it comes to us almost the other way around. It's as though the glory itself is present with us so that we behold his glory. And that's the third thing that John's speaking about here. You know, he speaks about his relationship to God in eternity, Christ's relationship to God in eternity, right? He speaks to Christ's relationship to time and his nativity. And then thirdly, now John speaks about his relation to John, his relation to us and his glory. Have you ever said that about anybody, that they're a glorious person? We don't use that term in describing people often, do we? Well, they're glorious, right? When do we use the term glorious? Well, when we go to the Grand Canyon, right? Oh, what a glorious sight, right? Or at the Christmas party we had Friday night, what a glorious spread of food, <laughs> You know, it was glorious. The desserts were glorious. We use it when we eat a good meal. We use it when we see an amazing thing of nature, right? But we don't normally use that term about people. That's a glorious person, right? Well, I think that's what John is saying here. The word was made flesh. John's saying, listen, folks, I saw his glory. And now where does that glory lie, John says? John says the glory lies in the distance. Get this. The glory that I witness in Christ lies in the distance, in the tension between the two realities that I saw. John's saying, listen, I see Christ in the glory of heaven, right? He was majestic and he is in heaven with all of the majesty and the infinites and the perfection of God, the unimaginability of the glory of God. And then Jesus comes from that glory into the weakness of the virgin's womb. Think about this. That Christ was in the glory and in the presence of his Father in heaven. And then he descends, condescends into the amniotic fluid of the womb of a 16-year-old teenage girl. That he left the glories of his Father and goes into the womb of a little girl. In all the brokenness of mankind, in all the brokenness of this creation, Right? And this is the astonishing thing for John. It's like right at the very beginning of the gospel. He's saying, listen, folks, let me tell you the most astonishing thing from the very first. And I want you to marinate through this, in this, through the rest of my gospel, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glories. Listen, friends, John's saying, I have seen it firsthand. I have beheld his glory. You know, and John didn't have the technology that we have today, right? We have telescopes. We have the technology to send a giant uh, spaceship-sized telescope into the universe, right, or into the space. 
the Hubble telescope that takes millions and millions of pictures and, and looks into distant galaxies even and transmits these pictures back to us here on Earth. And we see these amazing, amazing pictures, right? You know, and even then, we still don't know much about the universe that we live in. Scientists are still trying to figure out the known universe. They're still trying to understand the magnitude of just our little mil- universe, the Milky Way, right? And yet, we read about the Word who was with God in the beginning, right? Jesus. And how in the first chapter of the Bible, the stars are described. You remember this if you read the King James Version. The King James makes this very clear of how the King James handles Genesis chapter 1, verse 16 in particular. The King James Version says, God made two great lights, right? The greater light to rule the day, the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night. And then he tags this on after that, and he made the stars also. It's like, yep, God made the sun, God made the moon, and then it's almost like we have this throwaway statement, oh, and he also made the stars, right? See, friends, this is who he is. That In his infinity and in his majesty, in all of his power, and all of his possessions, he has all knowledge, right? And some of you here think that you might be hiding from him this morning. You can't hide from Jesus. He knows you. Friends, he knows you. He knows your soul. He knows the darkest places of your heart that you try to hide from everybody, even yourself. That you try to numb with whatever it is that your drug of choice is. You can't hide from him, right? You think you can pull the wolves over the eyes of the one who thinks it's incidental just to hang the stars, right? And yet this great one, John says, he came in flesh and blood. And we can get a little bit of an understanding of this. Let me illustrate it like this. Have you ever seen a beautiful woman? Now, don't go there. Okay. Seriously, not just somebody, you know, the pretty model on the cover of a magazine. I'm talking about a beautiful woman, certainly on the outside. Maybe they don't need much makeup or they don't need to brush their hair. They're just beautiful physically, but also on the inside, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, right? A woman of dignity and of poise and of intelligence and maybe the word is loveliness, just a lovely, beautiful woman. Makes me think of a, of a lady that I have a, as a friend and who I got to work with in Haiti named Bonnie. I took teams to Haiti after the earthquake in 2010 and if you've ever been to the country of Haiti, it is a broken country, right? And then the earthquake just made things exponentially worse and more broken, right? And so we get into Port-au-Prince. I mean, this city is literally, I mean, it's the dirtiest place I've ever been to in my life. They don't have trash service. They don't have sewer systems like we do. I mean, sewers, sewage is running in the streets. You just step in puddles of sewage. There's trash literally heaped up everywhere along the road. It's just the dirtiest place stinkiest, most broken place I've ever been to. And we get to the outskirts of the city in the most, one of the hardest hit regions where the earthquake hit. I mean, there are mass graves literally all around us. You could still smell the stench of decomposing bodies. And we get to this compound, this run-down, dilapidated compound, and out, out walks this woman named Bonnie. No makeup, sweaty as, I mean, it's 100 degrees, and it's hot as all get out there. She's sweating, and but she's beautiful. Long hair, sticking out everywhere. No makeup, but she is so beautiful. And Bonnie begins to talk and share her heart about the Lord and 
her heart for the Haitian people. And I just start crying. <laughs> In fact, our whole team, just, it's like E.F. Hutton, when, EF, you know, when he, he speaks, everybody listens. When Bonnie spoke, everybody listened to every, hung on every word she said because she was such a beautiful person, right? She had devoted her life to serve the Haitians, particularly those who were sick and not so lovely. And so that week we watched Bonnie serve and love these folks, these broken folks, these sick folks. And as I watched Bonnie, I mean, here's this beautiful lady next to these Haitians who are really not so beautiful. Did it make Bonnie less glorious, right? No. It made her more glorious, right? I saw her glory. Her glory was seen in her willingness to stoop down and get dirty and serve these folks. And it made her more glorious, her beauty or her loveliness weren't dependent on other beautiful people being around her and reflecting her beauty back. No, 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 no. Her beauty was inherent. It was inside. It was genuine beauty from within. And her beauty, her loveliness, made other things around her that weren't so beautiful, beautiful. Made them lovely. Her beauty beautified the ugliness around her and outside of her. And that's what Jesus does. That's what John saw John himself as the disciple, he was broken. He was sinful. And all of his sinfulness and brokenness, God raised him up through Christ. And he was spiritually bankrupt. John was spiritually filthy and he was needy. And he's saying that Jesus stooped down and embraced me. And Jesus in his beauty, the word made flesh, made me beautiful. Right? And Jesus said, John, I receive you. Now you receive me. You know, it's interesting that there are two Johns in this passage, right? One of them is the author of the passage, right? John the Apostle, the disciple, and the other is John the Baptist. And John the disciple, the author of John, was very clever in the way he did this because he puts the two Johns, himself and John the Baptist, in very close proximity to each other in chapter 1 here. And basically, here's what he's saying. Listen, there are two Johns here, me, the writer, and John the Baptist. But both of us, both of us Johns, John squared, are pointing to the same thing. We are pointing to the Lord Jesus. The Apostle John is saying, do you see his glory? The word was with God. The word was God. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you see his glory? And John the Baptist later on in the chapter is saying, do you see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And here's the amazing thing. Guess what? They are saying the exact same thing, right? Because the only place where ultimately you find this door swinging open into the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, like my friend Bonnie, who beautified others that she was around, the Lord Jesus shows his glory by dying like a sacrificial lamb on the cross for my sin and for your sin. And John says, as he comes to the conclusion of his prologue, this grand overture to his gospel, he says this. John says, what happened to us was this. We saw his glory. And because we received him, he gave us the right to become children of God who were, not born, who were born not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but who were born of God and are able to call him. And he uses this interesting word who are able to call him Father. Father. You know, I wonder, 
I wonder if there are some of you here this morning who've never really called God Father. You've said it, right? You've been to church services. The bulletin's been thrust in your hand. You've read the Lord's Prayer, Our Father. Maybe you've sung it, Father. But you've never truly said for yourself, Father. He is my Father. Apart from that, there's never been a moment in your life where you've had the instinct within you to say to God, you are my Father. And John's saying, listen, as many as, many as have received him, received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, John's dealing with one of our most fundamental problems. John is dealing with one of your most fundamental problems Regardless of who your parents are, regardless of your, your lineage, regardless of your family tree, John's saying, by nature, you are a spiritual orphan. And you have been wandering the universe. Maybe you've been wandering the state of Virginia. Maybe you've been wandering the county of Botetourt, looking for a home. And you're wandering and you have no place where you can go where you feel like, I am loved. I am really loved. And John's saying, little ones, dear ones. As a matter of fact, he uses that term in 1 John, in his epistle 1 John. He calls the church, he calls the believers, he says, little children, dear ones. This is the place. This is the place in my gospel, chapter 1, where you come and say, Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Would you take away my sins, Jesus? Lord, you are the word who was made flesh, so speak to my heart to the deepest, darkest places of my heart that I might see your glory, Jesus, and never be the same. That's why we sang this carol this morning, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I love the line in that hymn, Cast Out Our Sin." And enter in and be born in us today. You see, Christmas is not something that at the end of the day we just celebrate, right? We hit December 26 and all of Christmas is all of a sudden over and we're all deflated and depressed, right? Listen, friends. Christmas is something that actually happens to you. That's what the hymn, The Little Town of Bethlehem, is saying, that it is born in you. Christmas is born in us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is born. Christ is born in us. So let me ask you this in all seriousness. Have you received the Lord Jesus? Is He born in you? pray that this moment, indeed this day, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation, that indeed this moment Christ would be born in you. And you know one of the ways that you'll know that? Have you ever called God Father? Do you call Him Father? I hope so. Today could be the day where you come to know the Lord Jesus and you can address the God of the universe as Father. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, thank you for your precious word.
thank you that, God, you did not leave us um, to fend on our own. I mean, you could have, Lord. We, you created this world that, Jesus, you spoke the world into existence. Um, that you were with your Father even before time or creation began. And, and perfect intimacy between you and the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the triune God. There was perfect love and perfect fellowship and perfect community and perfect love and perfect intimacy. And out of the overflow of that love within the Trinity, the world was created and it was good and it was right. But then sin entered the world. um, And it wasn't just Adam and Eve's fault. Lord, it was our fault too because all of us by nature rebel and turn from you. All of us, by nature, we don't like authority. Um, why else do we cringe when we pass a highway patrolman? Or why do we cringe when our parents still tell us what to do? All of us, by nature, hate authority. All of us, by nature, think that we know how to orchestrate or rule or run our life. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us to his own way. So, Lord, you could have left us in this bind. You could have wiped us out and never, ever started over again. But, God, you so loved the world that you sent your one and only begotten Son, Jesus, that who might ever believe in him might have eternal life and be able to truly cry out to the God of this universe and call him Father. I pray that if there be any among us today who don't, know you as Father. Maybe they've been burned. Maybe they feel very distant. Maybe they um, have played the game of religion for many years, but they would never have the courage or even the ability within their heart to call you Father because they're not regenerate. They don't know Jesus. I pray that this very moment, come Holy Spirit and convert them from death to life, that they might embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as King and their Savior that they might cast out their sin on Jesus and he might enter in, that Christ might be born in them today. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Encourage us. Thank you, Jesus, that you became flesh and dwelt among us. And you took our sin, past, present, and future on the cross and have forgiven us and have loved us and are making all things new. And we long for that day when we get to be with you in eternity in heaven. But in the meantime, strengthen us, encourage us, and show us all the more how much you love us through Christ. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our King and our Savior. Amen. We're going to stand in.